Well, good morning, Bridge family. So good to see you. Welcome. We're so glad that you guys are here. Those of you in Spring Hill, those of you uh, over at our Columbia campus, we love you, Columbia. We're so glad that you're joining us right now. If uh, you're here and it's your first time, maybe you're here for Father's Day visiting family. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, we love you. We're so glad that uh, all of you are here. And it's an honor for me to lead us in our time in the Word today. And uh, it's been a minute since I've been up here um, to uh, stand before you and open God's Word. And I'd love to take just a second before we dive into the word today and to tell you why that is. Um, it was the Tuesday after Easter, so a couple months ago, uh, I sat with Vanessa, my wife, in uh, the office of a surgical oncologist, and uh, she heard three words that are terrifying that we all, uh, you know, kind of live in fear of sometimes, and she, she heard those words, you have cancer. And uh, over the last couple of months, Vanessa and I have been uh, wrestling with what that journey looks like and wrestling with God and what he was doing in this journey. And uh, man, here's what we, here's what we just kind of came to the conclusion of. Um, before God ever knit Vanessa in her, her mother's womb, he had it under control and he knew that moment would happen. And so we know that he's good regardless of the fact if he chooses to, cho to, to heal her in this life or in the next, we know that he's still good. We'll say that he's good if she's not healed. We'll say that, she's good, that he's good if she is healed. And so now we're a couple months into this thing and it's been a long, scary and confusing sometimes journey. Uh, and so many, many doctor's appointments, dozens actually, batteries of testing and a five and a half hour surgery uh, is over. And uh, according to the last report that we got, she is 100% cancer free. Amen. <laughs> she was actually in the eight o'clock service and so many of you guys just loved on her and throughout this whole journey, you've pastored us and ministered to us. It's what a church should be. So thank you, Bridge family, for loving on my family um, during this season. Now, I'm pumped to open the word. So if you have your Bible, uh, open to Matthew chapter six. We're gonna open the word today and talk about Matthew chapter six. We're starting a new series of messages that we're just simply calling Pray Like Jesus and obviously, what we're going to talk about is praying. And uh, man, there's nothing that's more important, more critical, more like the air we breathe for our spiritual lives than prayer. In fact, one theologian said it that way. He said, it's no more possible for a Christian to, to live a life without praying than it is for us to live a physical life without breathing. It's absolutely critical and important for us as individuals. If we want to see the anointing of God unleashed on and through our lives. If we want to see the power of God unlocked in us and through us, it will come through praying. In fact, James Dobson said, as a parent, as a father or a mother, the most important thing you can do for your kids. In fact, I'll read his quote. There's nothing more important to parents when it comes to passing on a generational legacy of faith and values to their children than the fervent prayer of parents. It's critical to your family and your family's health. It's critical to the health of our church. Do you know that Jesus never said that this would be a house of preaching? He never said this would be a house of worship, though so many times we call a church a house of worship. He never said this would be a house of student ministry or children's ministry or intro to the bridge. He said, my house will be a house of prayer. And the vibrancy and the health of our church will not come through greater, more strategic systems. It will come through a faith family who is deeply rooted and anchored in a healthy prayer life. In fact, E.M. Bounds is a theologian from a generation or two ago. He said this, 
He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Spirit can use the church needs people mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit doesn't flow through, bounce as through methods, through men. He does not anoint plans, but people. People of prayer. And I want the power of the Holy Spirit to be unlocked in and through my life, through my relationship with God when it comes to prayer. But the problem sometimes is, I think you can relate to this, is that my prayer life often just kind of feels clumsy and shallow. I mean, am I the only one? Like, I hope I'm not alone up here. I don't think I am. My prayer life seems clumsy and shallow. Sometimes I don't know what to say. Sometimes it feels awkward. In fact, I kind of feel like this young lady that Vanessa was in Vanessa's middle school girls small group years ago when I was a youth pastor. She took her group out to eat dinner somewhere one night and she asked one of these middle school girls to pray. And this little girl said, man, I don't really know how to pray. I've never prayed out loud. I don't know what to do. And Vanessa said, just pray the first thing. This is a true story, y'all. She, she said, pray the first thing that comes to your mind. And this little girl said, okay, I will, I will. Let's bow our heads. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. If he hollers, make him pay $15. Like that's, she started to pray this thing. And I was just like, wait, this, this un unraveled real fast. Like, and uh, that's the way my prayer life feels sometimes. Like I don't say the right stuff. It's awkward. It doesn't make sense sometimes. And it often leaves me more frustrated than filled up in the Holy Spirit. And I think maybe you can relate to that, right? Um, in fact, a couple of months ago, I put a post out on Facebook and I just asked this question. Um, when you think of the vibrancy and health of your prayer life, What's one word that describes it? And you responded. There were actually about 150 comments on that post. And some of you said things like, my prayer life feels shallow, confused, discouraged, disappointed, lacking, stuck, unsatisfied. And the list went on and on. So I, th I hope that I'm not alone in feeling that way. I think you can relate to some of these things. And so we're going to talk about this over the next several weeks together. And if you've ever felt that way, um, you're in good company because Jesus' disciples uh, felt that way. In fact, they were guys who, interestingly enough, had been trained their entire lives to pray. I mean, they were Jewish boys who literally, from before the time they were ever able to understand, you know, what was going on or what was being said, they were taught. Like, it was seared into their minds, ways and words and models of prayer, and yet, they came to Jesus one day, and basically they said this. I'll summarize. They said, Jesus, your prayer life is different than our prayer life. Like there's something that we see in you that when we pray, it's just not the same, and we don't think we do it right, so can you help us learn how to do it the way you do it? Because we want to see what's happened in your life happen in and through our lives. I mean, and honestly, what they'd seen is they'd seen Jesus heal people through the way he prayed. They'd seen Jesus raise people from the dead because of the way he prayed. They'd seen Jesus in his prayers cast out demons. They'd seen the Holy Spirit come on Jesus and anoint him as he prayed. They'd seen him transfigured with divine glory as he prayed. Like There was a power that flowed in and through Jesus' life because of his prayer life, because of the way he prayed. And so the disciples said, like, we've been taught our whole lives words to say, but I want that. <laughs> like, Jesus, teach us how to do that. And so Jesus' response to their request is the text that we're going to look at over the next several weeks together. You see it recorded twice 
in the Bible. It's in John chapter 11. It's also in Matthew or Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 6. And so we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start reading in just a second in, uh, in verse 5. We're going to read all the way through verse 13, and then we're going to talk about it for just a second, okay? So let me go ahead and, and read it for us. Here we go. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. So Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in, uh, who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for, the, for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we, for all, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, in that passage, from that passage, I want to show you three things, okay? Three things that I can help us, uh, that I think can help us kind of get going with a healthy prayer life. Those three things are, I want to show you a foundation for your prayers. I want to show you the framework for prayer. And then I want to get super practical at the end. And I want to give you some fundamentals of prayer. So foundation, framework, and fundamentals. Now, did you notice they made this request of Jesus, which we didn't read that part. That part's actually recorded in Luke's account of this story in Luke 11. But in this story, when Jesus started his response to them, um, what we saw is before Jesus taught them how to pray, right? He said, so pray like this, our father in heaven. Before he got to that stuff, first he taught them how not to pray. And he said, don't pray like this. And basically, I'm going to tell you kind of in summary what Jesus is saying, and then I'll explain it to you. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, I don't want you to be unfulfilled in your prayer life. I don't want your prayer life to be lacking. In fact, look back at verse 7. Let me explain that. In verse 7, Jesus says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. The word empty in the original language is a word um, that, that just simply means cold and mechanical and hollow. And so what Jesus says is, I don't want your prayer life to be empty. I don't want it to be cold. I don't want it to be mechanical. I don't want it to feel that way to you. I want it to be something much deeper. I don't want it to be that way. Um, and then he uses the word down here. He uses the word many for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. The word many in the original language, some of your translations actually will say anxious. You ever been around somebody that when they get anxious, they just, they just keep going, just going, 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 going. You're like, they must be nervous because they're talking a whole lot. Like that's, that's the idea of that word. So sometimes that word many is translated anxious in the Bible. What Jesus is saying is that I don't want your prayer life to feel cold and mechanical and hollow and empty and anxious. I want it to be something deeper. And what he's saying is basically the assumption is that there is a way to pray that will, a foundation that we build our prayer life on that will cause our prayers to feel cold and mechanical and hollow and empty and leave us feeling a degree of anxiety. And if that's you, if you can relate to any of what I just said in your own prayer life, it ever feels that way to you, 
What Jesus is pointing out to us in this text, and I'll show you in just a second, is that there is a fundamental flaw in the foundation of your prayers. If you feel that way, there's a fundamental flaw in the foundation from which you approach God. Okay, now, now let me explain what I mean. Let me just let me go real general, and then I'm going to come back to the text, okay? The foundation from which you approach any relationship in your life is important. And we all have these sort of implicit assumptions that we make about our relationship with another person. Like we have this foundational assumptions that we make about our relationship with another person that will lead us to uh, the level of interchange. It'll kind of determine the degree of interchange that we have with that person. Let, let me show you what I mean by that, okay? Let me, let me get a little practical. So I love this guy right here. This is Bob Hensley. Uh, and right now in our Columbia campus, people are applauding for Bob Hensley because Columbia loves Bob, Bob Hensley. So right now, Spring Hill, can we join Columbia? Can we just let Bob know how much we love him as a church? And so you're clapping, you're like, I don't even know Bob, but I guess I love him. He must be awesome. Here's Bob. Bob is a greeter in our Columbia campus, and he stands by the front door in the lobby in Columbia, uh, and he loves our church so much, he actually went and had some custom-made bridge shirts made. He wears them every, literally every single day. He told me he has 15 of them. He wears them everywhere he goes so that it starts conversations about the bridge, and he can tell people about the church that he loves so much. Like, that's Bob. And uh, you can tell. Everybody that walks in that door, man, they love Bob, and Bob loves them. And every, He told me a couple weeks ago when I was down there, his goal is for every single person who walks in that door, for him to put his arm around them or give them a high five or handshake or a hug or whatever and tell them, this church has changed my life, and I want you to know I'm Bob, and Bob loves you. Like, that's his goal. Every single week, that's his deal. And so he's hugging people. He's kissing babies. He's, you know, working that room, man. That's, that's what Bob does. And Bob does that in Columbia because to Bob, our Columbia campus family is his family. And when somebody is family, there is... A, there is a degree of interaction with that person that's different than when somebody is not family, right? Imagine Bob goes downtown Nashville, or let's make this even better. Bob goes to Times Square, okay? And Bob's standing in the middle of Times Square wearing his Bridge Church shirt, and every single person that walks by headed to a show or wherever they're going, Bob says, you know Bob loves you, don't you? And he grabs, like when I was down there a couple weeks ago, he literally grabbed me by the arm and pulled me over to tell me that. Like grabbed my arm, pulled me over. So imagine he's in Times Square and he's, you know, Bob loves you. He's grabbing people by the arm, pulling them over, kissing their babies, taking selfies with them. I love you so much. Times Square has changed my life. You know, that thing. Imagine, imagine he's doing that. Now, what would you think if you go on vacation to Times Square and there's a guy out there doing that? What would you do? You'd see that guy and you'd go, you'd go the other way, right? You'd avoid that person because you don't know that guy and you think that guy's crazy. Bob, we love you. You're not, I promise. We love you so much. But you, if somebody's doing that there, you'd think they're crazy. Why? Because there's a difference in the foundation from which you approach that person for relationship with them. There's a difference in the, in, the interchange with that person because of the foundation of the relationship. There's a difference in approaching somebody as family and approaching somebody not as family, 
And so what Jesus is saying here is that the reason your prayers feel cold and mechanical and leave you feeling anxious is because there's a fundamental flaw in the foundation of your relationship with God leading you to an interchange with him that makes it, that's awkward, that makes you feel anxious, that's uncomfortable. Now here's the fundamental flaw in our foundation that leads us to pray that way. We see it in verse five. Look back at verse five. And when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites. Jesus says, if your prayers feel cold and anxious and mechanical and leave you, you know, feeling empty and hollow, it's because there's a fundamental flaw. And that fundamental flaw is you're approaching me like the hypocrites. What does that mean? <clears throat> when we think of hypocrites, what we think of is someone who's being insincere, right? Like somebody who says one thing and then with their lives, they live a different way. And that's a partial definition of that word. But in the original language, that word is actually so much more than just that. In the original language, it's the word hupokrates. That's the Greek word. And Jesus was hijacking a word from the culture of that day in this particular context. A hupokrates is an actor in a Greek drama. Okay. Now think about a hupokrates, an actor. What's an actor's job? An actor's job is to perform in a certain way that leads the audience to approve of that person and they approve by their applause. And then because of their approval, they get compensated, they get paid because of the degree of performance that they did. So then they get approval and then the, the, the crowd, the audience responds by meeting the um, Hippocrates' need, the performer's need, right? You see that? And, and so what Jesus is saying is to pray like the hypocrites, that's a fundamental flaw. And to pray like the hypocrites means you're, you're coming to God, you're approaching God from the foundation of a performer. You're trying to perform for God and it's leaving your prayer life feeling empty and shallow and hollow. And Jesus says, the reason that your prayers are stagnant is because on some level, you're approaching God from the wrong foundation. He says, you need, a, you need a more solid foundation. You need something deeper. You need a foundation of a family. And so he says, so don't approach God this way. Approach God, Hippocrates. Approach God this way. You call out to God, our Father. And honestly, like th this is one of the most uh, uh, fundamental sort of themes Maybe we'll say it this way. One of the most paradigmatic themes in the Bible. Like it's a, it's a paradigm that is, is, is heavy thematically in the Bible. It's the, the theme of the doctrine of adoption into the family of God. In fact, you see it in John chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, you and I who received Jesus into our hearts. We believe who he is. We've invited him into our lives. We've made him our savior. He gave them the right to be called not performer. It wasn't about how well we performed. He gave them the right to be children of God. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, our father in heaven has made us a promise that we are his children. He moved us from creation to child. That's our status. We're not just creation. We're his child. Now, some of you know this. Most of you don't know this. When I was five months old, uh, I was adopted. Um, I was born biologically to two high school unmarried 
kids. Uh, my birth father was a junior in high school. My birth mother was a senior in high school. I met them when I was 21. That's for another day. It's fascinating. Um, I lived five months in the foster care system. And then on February 12th, 1979, yes, I'm that old, 1979, <laughs> everything changed. See, that was the day a man walked into my life, a hero named Ron Dalberry. And in that moment, what Ron Dalberry did on that day is he stepped into my life and he said, I choose you. And you're not just some kid out there. You're my son. And in that moment, my status changed from orphan to child. And I was Ron Dalberry's child. And listen, listen, listen. Here's the deal. I didn't do anything to warrant him choosing me. Okay. Now, you need to think about this with your theology and your relationship with Jesus. I didn't perform good enough for me to be his child. I, in fact, it was more of a burden for him to have me than to not have me. All I did was eat and poop. That costs money and it's gross, right? I mean, that's it. Keep him up at night. Like that's all I did. It was harder for him to have me than not have me. But he chose me to be his child. And that's what the Bible says about you. That before in Ephesians chapter one, before the foundation of the earth, God chose you to be adopted into his family. That's what the Bible says about you. And that is the foundation of your relationship with God. And listen, listen, listen. Not one time throughout my stupid high school years, we've all had them, okay? Don't judge me right now. We've all had those years. Not one time when I did dumb things that were rebellious and dishonored my dad, did my dad walk up the stairs to my room and close my door and sit down and say, son, we gotta have a talk. Actually, he did that a lot, but he didn't do the next part a lot, ever, actually. Not one time did he ever come to my room, close the door, sit down and say, Chris, you know, this just isn't working out. You know, you, you just, you've been rebellious. You haven't honored me. Like our relationship, it's just, you're not performing right. And so I need you to, Chris, just real quick, I need you to get your stuff together, pack your bag. I'm going to take you back. I'm going to drop you off at the orphanage. <laughs> he never did that. Why? Because my father's approval of me as his adopted son does not depend on my performance. It depends on his promise. And his promise was, I will make you my son. I choose you. And listen, a, a performer says, I'll perform so you approve of me. A father says, no matter what you do, I approve of you. A performer's relationship, that's right. A performer's relationship is conditional. A father's relationship is unconditional. A performer is about doing. A relationship with a father is simply about being. And as a Christian, the truest thing about you, listen, the Bible's implicitly, explicitly clear, and I wish I had time to explain all of the theology of it. The Bible is explicitly clear that the truest thing about you as a Christian person is most definitely not that you're a performer. That's the opposite of the gospel. The truest thing about you is that you and I, if you're a Christian person, have been adopted into the family of God and you are a son or a daughter of the king. That's the truest thing about you. The problem is the enemy knows that. And the enemy is on the prowl seeking to devour you. He wants to destroy your life. And one of the greatest ways he can destroy your life is to, to sort of fracture your communion with God through prayer. And what he will do is 
He will attack the foundation from which you approach God. He will attack your identity as a son or a daughter of the king. If he did that to Jesus, he will do that to you. And he did that to Jesus. Remember when Jesus was baptized, he went into the the Jordan River. He was baptized. There was a voice from heaven that said, it was God, the father. He said, this Jesus is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Remember that? He said, this is my son. He goes out to the wilderness. The enemy comes and visits with him and the enemy tempts him. Remember the story in the Bible? If you've been around church and the enemy tempts him and he says, you know what he does? He says, there's this one phrase. He says, if you really are a son, if you really are the son of God, he's questioning, he's causing Jesus to call into question his, the foundation of his relationship to the father, his identity as a son. If you really are the son, then what you need to do is you need to perform, command these rocks to turn to bread. Remember that story? If you really are perform, you're not really a son, you're a performer. That's what the enemy's saying to Jesus. If you really are the son, then throw yourself off of this cliff and command the angels in heaven, command, perform, command the angels to grab you and you know, and hold you and take you on down to the ground. You're not a son. You're a performer. So perform, Jesus. And listen, if the enemy will do that to the son, he will do that to the adopted brothers and sisters of the son. His primary, listen, I believe his primary attack on yours, your life and mine is to attack the foundation of the way we approach Jesus. That is to attack our sonship and daughtership of God the Father. He will do that. And so what do we do? We have to, the Bible says, saturate our hearts in the doctrine of adoption. That's why the prayer doesn't start with, give us this day our daily bread, or your kingdom come, your will be done, or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It starts with our Father. Before we ever get to asking God for stuff, We saturate our hearts in our sonship and daughtership of the king. We grab our hearts and we don't let our hearts go until we're reminded and we feel the weight of man. We've been chosen by our father regardless of what we did. Until we feel the weight of that, don't move forward in your prayers. You just simply beg the heart of God to feel it. Sometimes our our hearts don't feel it. We have to tell our minds And eventually our minds will tell our hearts, right? You saturate your heart in the uh, the doctrine um, of adoption. In fact, you see this in 1 John 3, 1. John says this. He says, see, that's a command. See, press into it. Tell yourself this. Tell your heart. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? This phrase, what kind of love, is fascinating in the original language. It's actually a phrase that means from what country. From what country. Um, And and the the idea is, the, the writer is saying, you tell your heart, you ask your heart, where, how is this even possible? You remind your heart that the love of the Father is so great when he called us to be his children. That it's so overwhelming to you to go, how is this even, where did this even come from? What country did this even come from? I, I, I don't, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. And it's inescapable for my heart. So you tell yourself over and over and over again, what kind of, this is amazing. What kind of love is this? Listen, I've never gotten over February 12th, 1979. 
and never gotten over that day. And when I see those of you who've adopted, uh, Jeff and Mandy Rose are, are sitting right here, and Jeff and Mandy uh, have adopted. Uh, I saw Kevin and Sarah Honnett in the first service, and Kevin and Sarah have adopted. Kevin's one of our elders here. So many of you guys. When I see you, you know what I think? You guys are heroes. Amen. That's what I think. Yeah, man. I mean, that's what I think. Why? Because adoption transformed my life. And I've never gotten over it. And what this text is teaching us is Jesus is saying, you show me someone who feels that way about their spiritual adoption. And I'll show you someone who has a vibrant and a thriving prayer life. If you come at your prayer from that foundation and you don't let your heart go until your heart believes and feels the weight of God as your father and what all that means, then you'll have a vibrant and a thriving prayer life. And it will be the fire that fuels your access to God and your relationship with God and the way you pray and your motivation for prayer. So if you don't feel that, there's a faulty foundation. You remind your heart. You give your heart a solid foundation of prayer, okay? So that's the foundation of prayer. I've got two more points and one minute to go, okay? This is according to this timer right here. All right, I'm going to go quick. The foundation of prayer. Next is the fundamentals of, of or the, the framework of prayer, the framework of prayer. Notice in the text, he said, our Father in heaven, there's a line after it, hallowed be your name. We think of the word hallowed and we think of like, man, that's something, a word that's like where we call out the character of God. And we say, God, you're holy, you're wonderful, you're miraculous. It's about who God is. And that is true of that word. There's another component to that word hallowed, though, in the original language that sometimes we forget. The second component to that word is not just who God is, it's also what God does. The word actually could also be translated sanctified. And to, for someone to sanctify their name, it means to set apart. It means that they're doing an action in a way that sets them apart from everything else. That's what sanctify your name means. So when you call out to God, so you say, hallowed be your name, what you're saying is, God, you're wonderful. Like you're calling out his character, but you're also calling God to action. You're saying, God, in my life and in the world, sanctify your name. In fact, you see that idea in Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, verse 23. It says, it's not going to be on the screen. I'll just read it. It says, I'll magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they'll know that I'm the Lord. This is Ezekiel talking about God. God saying, I'm going to move to action in a way that people see it. And they go, man, God's awesome. Do you see that? That's what it means to make your name hallowed or to sanctify your name. And so when we call out to God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, sanctify your name, what we're doing is we're calling Daddy to action. We're crawling up in the lap. Let me say it a different way. We're reaching our hands in desperation to our Daddy and saying, Daddy, I need you. I need you. Sanctify your name, Daddy. Move to action, Daddy. I need your help. Do you see this? And then he moves from there into the ways that God seeks to sanctify his name in our lives. Moves to the ways that the, the a framework for prayer, the ways God wants to move and set his name apart. And so look, I'm going to give it to you. Look back at the text. It says, our Father in heaven, sanctify your name. Your kingdom come. 
He's talking about the kingdom of the father. We're sons and daughters of the king who has a kingdom and his greatest desire is that his kingdom be advanced. The kingdom up there in heaven be advanced in this world down here on earth as it is in heaven. And what we pray is when we pray our kingdom come is we're praying, God, would you use me to connect with what you're doing in this world? Would you, would you allow your kingdom to come more through me today than it did yesterday? Would you allow me to be a part of advancing your kingdom in this world? So you pray the kingdom of the Father. I'm going to come back and make this practical in just a second. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. And, and this is the provision of the Father. You're praying for the provision um, of the Father. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I pray because I can't help myself. <laughs> I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. Another theologian said it this way. He said, um, this is where we, this, asking God for provision. He said, this is where we pull up a chair to God's table and acknowledge that he means to feed us no matter what our hunger is. So we approach God and we, we come to him as daddy and we say, daddy, I'm calling you to action. Daddy, help me provide my daily bread, the provision of God. And then forgive our debts. God, help me to walk in forgiveness and to live as though it's true because it is. And help me to express the same forgiveness I've been given in every relationship that I have. That's the deal. And then he goes on. He says, and lead us not into temptation. God, you're our father in heaven, not our father on earth, our father in heaven. That means you have the perspective of heaven and you can see things miles ahead of my life that I can't see. And you can see that if I go this way and not this way, that I'll get to a place miles ahead that I don't need to be. So God, I know you have the perspective of heaven. So lead us, give us direction. It's the direction of the father. And then he says, lead us on into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Bible is explicit that we have an enemy seeking to destroy our lives. And so when we pray for the protection of the Father, we're reminding our hearts that greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. Lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, there's the framework. Let me give you some fundamentals as we wrap it up. This is how I use this in my life. Maybe this will help you. So what I'll do is everything that I pray... I'll run through this grid. Everything I pray, I'll run it through that grid. And so I'll just, over time, learn to do this better and better, more and more. So let's use Vanessa's cancer as an example. I would pray something like this, using this grid, this framework for Vanessa's cancer. God, you're our father. And nothing catches you by surprise. As a good father, you know things about me that I didn't even know you knew. And what this reminds me of, God, is that before you ever knit Vanessa together in her, in her mother's womb, that you, you knew this day was going to happen. So God, we trust you as our good father. We call you to action. Would you sanctify your name and what you do in her life? We know in your kingdom, there is no cancer. There is no death. There is no pain. And so Father, I pray that your kingdom would come here now. And in her life, there would be no cancer, right? And then God, would you provide for us? Would you provide healing if you choose to heal on this planet? Would you provide her comfort? Would you provide her the strength to endure treatments? You see this? Like, then forgive us. God, forgive us for places where we don't trust you, where our hearts, passions, and desires aren't aligned with you. And would you help us to walk in that? 
And God, would you lead us to decisions that we need to make, to the right doctors? God, would you lead us to know the decisions about treatment, whatever, you know, that stuff. God, would you deliver, would you, we know that sometimes things happen in our lives that are not just circumstance, but that are attacks from the enemy. But we know greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. So God, if this cancer is an attack of the enemy in some way, whatever that looks like, I don't even know if I believe that, Lord, but if, if that's what's going on right now, in the name of Jesus, would you bind the enemy from his attacks on our lives, right? So you see this, you, everything you pray, you pray through the framework of this. This is the way God designed it to be. This, the, the Lord's prayer was never intended for you and I to pray like as verbatim. It was always intended for us to pray like as a, as a framework, Amen. as a model for us to pray. So, so that's what I do I, every day when I pray. I'll use that framework. Sometimes I'll actually kind of break it down to another level. And sometimes I'll focus really on one of these things more than the others. So from time to time, I'll schedule in my prayer journal. I'm a little OCD in this regard. Um, so just bear with me. Sometimes I'll schedule in my prayer journal on Mondays, I'm going to pray your kingdom come on Tuesday. I'll pray our daily bread. Give us this day, our daily bread like that. I'll kind of roll with it that way. And so on Mondays, I'm praying for things like the effectiveness in our church and the community. I'm praying for things like unreached people groups and missionaries around the world and, and so on and so on. You, do you see this? So Jesus gives us this model. He says, this is how you pray. It's not just mechanical and cold and hollow and shallow. You, you call up in the lap of your daddy. That's the foundation of your relationship. And you call on him to sanctify his name. You know what's awesome is that Jesus, the reason we can pray this prayer is because Jesus prayed this prayer for you and me with two exceptions. On the cross, Jesus was praying this prayer. On the cross, Jesus said, your kingdom come. He said, God, not my will, but yours be done. I'll go to the cross. Even though I don't want to go to the cross in my humanness, I'll go to the cross because it advances your kingdom and your kingdom's purpose in this world. And Jesus went to the cross and he bore the pain on the cross so that the kingdom of God could be and the kingdom of light could be present in our lives. That's what he was doing on the cross. And so that we could have access to the provision of the forgiveness of sins that God provides for us. It's what Jesus was doing. And he was praying for us on the cross. He was praying, forgive them of their debts. And he made a way so our debts could be forgiven. But there's two exceptions. You know what Jesus didn't do on the cross? Jesus did not call on God as Father. Why? Because on, on the cross, Jesus called out to God as God. Remember he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God. Why? The answer to that question is also why he didn't pray, deliver me from evil. Because on the cross, what Jesus was doing is he was taking all of the evil in your life and all of the evil in the world, and all of the evil in my life. He was taking it on his shoulders, and he was bearing that weight for us on the cross so that he wouldn't be delivered from evil, so that we would be delivered from evil. On the cross, Jesus was praying this prayer to give you the foundation from which you could call on to God as your Father. And so because of that, we have access to him. So I want to pray that for us right now. At the end of the service, in just a little while, we're starting something new this week. We're going to have some of our elders and our prayer team available at the end of the service. Man, we want to sear this into the heart of our church. 
And they're going to be standing right around here at the end of the service. They'd love to pray with you. You'll hear more about that in just a second. For now, let me pray for us, okay? Father, thank you that we call you daddy. And right now we ask that in our lives you would sanctify yourself. You'd make your name great in what you do in us and in what you do through us. And so, Father, right now I pray that you would, in your incredible uh, gift of provision to us, we have a Father who loves to give good gifts to his children, that in those areas of our hearts where we need mercy, that you'd give us mercy. Those areas of our hearts where we need comfort, would you give us comfort? Would you give us peace? God, would you... Uh, give us the grace in this moment to remind our souls of the truest thing about us. Would you allow us to walk in that truth this week and not revert back into the foundation of performance? And Father, I pray that uh, you'd lead us as we go from this place to people who need to hear your message and you'd protect us from the attacks of the enemy in our lives. God, we love you. We thank you that we get to crawl up in your lap and call you daddy. And so we worship you right now. In Jesus' name, amen.